Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vakalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. I'm joined by Felix Gillette. He's with a uh, he's an enterprise editor for Bloomberg News Media, and he is also the co-author of the brand new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. It's available everywhere. And Felix, I had to do a double take when I saw that HBO was celebrating its 50th anniversary this year because I remember it in the early 80s when it was when I, when I was a kid. I never knew HBO had been around that long. What did HBO look like the first time it debuted back in, I think it was Wilkes-Barre, PA? Yeah, 1972 it debuted. looked very different than it did today. Uh, and it was watched by a couple hundred households. And they didn't know at that point really what they wanted to do, but the home box office, the name stood for, you know, anything in the world that you would have to go out and buy a ticket for. So Hollywood movie, a music concert, stand-up comedy performance, um, those were the things that HBO was going to show you. Uh, and that was kind of the programming idea for the first couple decades. Um, at the early outset, it was almost impossible to find HBO um, because the, ca- uh, the cable world at that point was just this huge chaotic mess that was just emerging um, and was largely just available in places where you couldn't get a great broadcast signal like because your town was blocked by mountains or even in lower Manhattan because of tall buildings, people would have a hard time getting broadcast signals. So at the outset, it was uh, a very small audience watching HBO. It seemed like it was boxing that really got it going. Was that fair? Boxing was huge for HBO in the 80s. Um, You know, HBO always thought in the early days we have to do things differently than the broadcast networks because ABC... Uh, CBS, NBC, they're too powerful, they have too much money, we can't go head-to-head with them, so let's do things differently. And in the 80s, the broadcast networks were kind of boxing, they were backing away from boxing because boxing was perceived as violent and their commercial sponsors weren't really thrilled about being associated with it. And that really opened up the door for HBO. And HBO dove into boxing and said, here's a sport we can really dominate. And as it happens, they focused very early on on Mike Tyson. Uh, and I would say Mike Tyson became the first great HBO villain, as we kind of think of him, because he was you know, so enthralling. Every time you had a fight on HBO, tons of people would sign up and subscribe. And he really was their primary draw uh, through much of the 80s. You know, when I was a kid growing up and somebody had HBO, it was almost seen as if they had a three-car garage or some luxury item. And oh, yeah. I think it, even to a certain extent, people I'll, hear still, I'll still hear them say, oh, no, we don't have HBO. And they act like it's this big thing when it's, it's I mean, it's not a huge money investment. But how did HBO deal with the, the reality that people were paying extra for something even as cable TV came into being? I think they always said from the beginning, HBO is a premium product, and it was a status symbol, and I think they leaned into that, like, yeah, you're going to, not everyone has this, it's a special thing, and if you get HBO, you're going to see things that you can't see on anywhere else, on broadcast television, on cable networks, so it was always, you know, a premium brand, and that you would have to pay extra for. Um, and the challenge, of course, with that is if you're going to 
pitch yourself as premium, then you really have to figure out, well, what is it that you can see on HBO that you can't see anywhere else? Um, and that's something that in the early days I think they kind of struggled with somewhat, uh, but they realized early on, well, you know, we can have curse words. So George Carlin can come on and do his, you know, seven words you can't say on television. He can do it on HBO because we're allowed cursing. So, and then, you know, nudity. They also, there's a ton of nudity in HBO programming. Uh, part of that was simply that, you know, again, they were thinking, well, what can't you see on uh, broadcast television? What is it that you would pay extra for? Um, so that is the kind of uh, thinking that HBO has had throughout its 50-year history in terms of trying to convince people, oh, in addition to your cable bundle, you're going to pay us an extra, you know, 10 or $15 a month. It seems like for me when HBO branched out into having its own original content, uh, I mean, the show I first remember watching on there is Oz, and then mm-hmm. morphed into The Sopranos and stuff. Were you able, when you did your research, to chart the the evolution of HBO's original programming that they became just these fantastic shows? Yeah, definitely. That was a big part of the book, and you're right. Oz was super important because there was this huge shift at HBO in the mid-'90s where they basically decided, okay, no matter how successful these music concerts are, these stand-up comedy performances or boxing matches, people come in, they watch them one time, they love it, it's over. And if we want to keep people coming back and we want to hold on to subscribers and we want them to show up every week, then we have to start doing serialized television. We have to start making series. And when they decided that, um, you know, that's when you get this, this incredible run of programming that they had. And Oz was really important because it was the first hour-long drama that they did in a major way. And right after, in that same time period, they did Oz, and they did Sex in the City, and they did Sopranos, and it just kind of steamrolled from there. But I think Oz was in many ways the testing uh, case of can we make a show that feels so unlike broadcast television that will really stand out and be different than what you would see on TV. And it's no accident that Oz was a show set in a prison because one genre that broadcast networks really would never touch was prison because it was thought of, that's eh, too violent in prisons, it's claustrophobic, you know, it's, it's the opposite of pleasant characters that we like to do. Um, so, yeah, Oz was a really important moment for HBO. I'm chatting with Felix Gillette, the co-author of the brand new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Felix, something I I guess I just don't pay close enough attention to entertainment news. I had no idea there was this whole situation between HBO and Netflix and the possibility of HBO buying Netflix. Can you kind of describe how that relationship developed and why it ultimately never became a marriage? Yeah, in 2005, 2006, there was a group of HBO executives in the West Coast offices that said, you know, Netflix, at that point, this was before they'd even launched their streaming service. Back then, it was, you know, people went on the Netflix website, they looked at a bunch of choices, they chose the movies they wanted to see, the TV shows, and then Netflix would mail them the DVDs in the mail. And the executives at HBO said, you know, Netflix, does a great job of developing this relationship directly with its customers. And HBO, from its inception, had always been a wholesaler. They never had a direct relationship with the customers. 
they gave the programming to these cable operators, then the cable operators gave it to the customers. And so these executives at HBO said, you know, it would be great to have this direct relationship with, um, with viewers. Why don't we go out and acquire Netflix? It's not going to cost us that much in the grand scheme of things. It will give us more leverage with the movie studios. We'll control more of the market, uh, the home entertainment market. And, uh, you know, the idea ended up being shot down pretty quickly. And then in the years that followed, HBO, uh, you know, was so lucrative at that point and so wedded to the um, cable and satellite industry that when streaming happened and there was this new technology and this new way of sending movies directly into people's homes over the Internet, HBO struggled immensely to make that transition. And meanwhile, Netflix was able to jump right in there and get a huge head start. And it's kind of one of those classic innovators dilemma that you see a lot of businesses where a company that's very successful in one era of technology has a hard time making that transition uh, to the new era of technology and leaves the door open for a startup that isn't really um, so invested in the previous era. And that's exactly what has happened with Netflix and HBO. Um, and it's been a fascinating dance between these two companies um, really for the past 25 years. All right. Well, this book just gave me such insight into this fantastic product that is HBO over the years. The book is It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO, uh, co-authored by Felix Gillette and Josh, I think it's Coblin, right? Uh, John Coblin. John Coblin. And uh, anyway, Felix, it's just been a pleasure talking to you about this. I love the book, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Thanks so much, Brian. It was really fun. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Yeah.